In this episode of 50 Seats of Terror, we are going international. All stories have a beginning. Some beginnings have been lost to time, while others have been erased intentionally. A common trend through our reading for this week included a lot of washing over of local traditions to solidify the hold of the church in Christian faith as it spread throughout Europe. It is important to note before we start that many Germanic, Celtic, and Norse figures in mythology were neither good nor bad. They simply were. They were praised for their supposed power and distributed both reward and punishment within the realm of their abilities to those deserving of either. As the church sought to gain and maintain control, the remaining aspects of these deities were warped all goodness and hope stripped away, leaving only their worst parts. When the stories became so violent, so vile, and so terrifying, they banned the stories from being told. But we all know the best way to make sure something sticks around is by making it forbidden. But like the winter yields to the spring only to return the following year, these stories could not be extinguished entirely. This is 50 States of Terror, Christmas Cryptids. Fifty States of Terror may include descriptions and discussions unsuitable for young audiences. Episodes may contain adult themes, language, and content. Listener discretion is advised. "'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the dark, Not a cryptid was stirring, not a growl, moan, or bark, For the Yuletide brings both joy and good tiding, But also such darkness, even the monsters go hiding. You ask for more history, and that's what you'll be gifted. We dug in the archives, we searched and we sifted. We found you four stories, and four spirits of Christmas. Be wary the faint of heart or the superstitious. Each stroke of the clock brings us nearer the hour that these Yuletide spirits rise to full power. So take care, dear listener, and be not afraid. They'll be gone by epiphany and have never overstayed. It's time for bed. Now get on in there. No, don't give me any guff. You just get on up there and go to bed. You don't go to sleep. He can't come. Now get up to bed. You know what happens if you don't go to sleep tonight. Christmas! Ho, 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 ho. Santa! <laughs> or the Wimpers! 
The name Krampus may already sound familiar to you. In the early 2000s, there was a massive surge in popularity for the gnarled visage in the United States. So much so now that he feels right at home in our 50 States of Terror collection. But before we can know Krampus, we must first know a little more about his popular counterpart, St. Nicholas. The word of the day, children, is dichotomy. Without exception, all of our Christmas cryptids and spirits in this episode have a distinct dichotomy of character, whether that's within themselves or being countered by an accompanying story. So what we formally know of St. Nicholas of Myra is very little. At the time of his living, both birth and death records were kept, but the papyrus in which they were written didn't fare as well as our modern bookkeeping standards. Some stories, still told orally hundreds of years after his death, were later recorded and now have been archived. We accept that he was born to wealthy Christian parents, and after their death he donated their riches to the destitute members of the society. One of the most contested stories, and the first account of gift-giving in a home that I could find, was referred to as a dowry for three virgins. When the father of three virgin women became hard on his luck, he knew he could not be able to afford a dowry for his daughters, and they would be forced into a life of hardship and prostitution. Nicholas of Myra heard of their troubles, and under cover of night, he threw a bag of gold through their window. The father was confused, but quickly set up marriage for his oldest daughter. After the wedding, Nicholas returned and repeated the act. And then the second daughter was married off as well. The father had stayed up for nights on end, hoping to catch a glimpse of their benefactor, and he caught Nicholas at the window. He bowed before him and thanked him for his generosity, in which Nicholas responded by ordering the father never to speak of the gifts that he had been given. St. Nicholas of Myra died on December 6th, and it later became his feast day. He is the patron saint of children, brewers, sailors, and the wrongly imprisoned. He's got quite a few under his belt. Over the centuries after his death, it became common for people to prepare that he might visit on his feast day. And the tradition of exchanging gifts and filling boots with small goods became a norm. But what of those undeserving of his generosity? Enter Krampus. Many different cultures have claimed to be responsible for the beginning of this character. But there are some consistencies that ring throughout, such as he's a half-formed man. His body is split between the features of a man and a goat. Some depictions show him more like a satyr, with horns and the legs of a goat, while earlier accounts give him the foot of a man and the other foot cloven like a goat. He almost always has an unnaturally long, sharp tongue. He's bound in chains and he carries a sack over his shoulder, and he carries switches to whip naughty children. Often it's said that St. Nicholas would come to the home of the children accompanied by Krampus. It's like a good cop, bad cop situation. Upon review of the child's behavior of the last year, they would either be gifted with treats or suffer the consequences that Krampus would provide. He had a penchant for whipping them with the birch switches he would carry. In fact, some sources claim that parents would leave the switches, often painted gold, for children to find, to strike fear that Krampus was always watching. They would even use them as decor after the season was over, as a year-long reminder that Krampus and St. Nick were always watching. In more extreme cases, he would ensnare the child in chains, stuff them in the sack on his back, and then drown them in a local body of water, or he would torture you after having dragged you to hell. Talk about an overreaction to sneaking some late-night sweets after bedtime. 
But on the topic of hell, let's get to his origins. One of the most common canon origins is that Krampus is the child of hell. In Norse mythology, hell is her name. And why not? Even though he's described as a German story, the furthest back we can find Krampus, he's actually from Austria. Now, Hel was the overseer of the underworld. Her form is notoriously half-beautiful and half-grotesque. We're back to that dichotomy. This could explain why he has a split body with two types. It's said that when he takes the children, if he doesn't drown them, he takes them back to his home in the fiery bowels of the underworld. Fun fact, this would actually make him the grandson of Loki, who has also had a huge surge in popularity thanks to the Marvel franchise. Other credible claims of origin come from Druidic traditions. They say that the figure is too similar to the pagan horned god to be ignored, and they do have a point. A common misconception of Krampus is that he's a singular creature. He is Krampus. But in his mythos, he's neither an individual, or even specifically male, Krampus is one of the Perchta, and that's a race of creature that's genderless, but they're always up to some dastardly deeds. And if the word Perchta rings a jingle bell for you, just wait, I promise you'll hear it again before the end of the episode. So, what to do if Krampus shows up at your door, hellbent on stuffing you in a sack and whisking you off to his lair? Lucky for us, Krampus has a weakness. He can be bribed with fruit. If a child offers a fruit to Krampus, he usually gets so distracted either by peeling the orange or cutting the apple that he forgets to take the child entirely. And some versions even say that he'll share the fruit with the child for their generosity. It's kind of like winning him over. So this year, instead of leaving out milk and cookies for Santa, consider leaving a glass of wine and an orange out for Krampus. for the feast? Are you coming? Ugh, I wish I could. I have so much left to do. Look at all this flax. I'll never be finished. Go ahead and go without me, and I'll be here spinning away. I love you. I love you too. I still have some to do, but I'll be finished by the end of the night. It's not a problem. I'll be done so soon. I'm almost finished. I've been working all week, all day. I didn't even go to the feast tonight. I'm almost finished. I'll be done by midnight. Please don't... Sometimes it's going to take the worst kind of pain to get you to change... 
the way I want you to. Much like her counterpart Krampus, Frau Perkta was one of what the Germans called the Kinderschrank, which means one that frightened children. Think kinder like how we say kindergarten, and shriek like shriek. If the kids were screaming, the Kinderschrank were satisfied. In as many ways as Frau Perkta and Krampus are similar, they are also starkly different. For example, the Frau did not care if you were of legal voting age. If you were naughty and lazy, you were naughty and lazy. Adults were not spared from her threats. If fortune and good behavior blessed you throughout the year, she was known to leave a silver coin on the pillows of those who were obedient, honest, and hardworking, while mercilessly punishing those who were not. But in this instance, sparing the rod did not spoil the child. Krampus could have his silly little sticks. She carried a blade in the folds of her skirt. She would take the tongue of lying children and saw it off at the root. If weaving women did not finish spinning their flax into linens, she would split their abdomen with her hidden blade, right down the middle, straight through their belly button, exposing all of their organs. She would then stuff it full of refuse and hot rocks and any remaining flax and seal the wound on the corpse left behind, never leaving a trace of her presence. This is how she gained one of her nicknames, the Belly Splitter. She gained many names over the years. From region to region, her infamy and story would grow. Her names were often variants of the name we know her as, such as Perkta Baba, Birchta, Bertha, and many others that I won't offend you by attempting to pronounce. Perkta itself is thought to be of an origin word meaning hidden, a similar thought is the name of the species of Krampus or Krampi, known as Perktas or Perchtas, as they were normally hidden from sight. But it seems more likely that our crone of Christmas actually got her name from her feast day, Berstentag. If you aren't instantly familiar with the Feast of Epiphany, you're not alone. Most of us learn the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas, as children, but it's not often that the meaning is explained. The 12 days begin on Christmas Day, and there is plenty of conjecture on the symbolism of the gifts in the song and how they pertain to the symbols of the birth of Christ. But what we do know to be true is that the celebration on January 6th is known as Epiphany and is the official end of the Christmas season. The 12th day is the day that the three kings reached the newly born Jesus. Frau Perkta is said to appear once in the 12 days before Christmas and once in the following famous 12. But I promised you dichotomy and I do not plan to disappoint. Frau Perkta is a crone, oftenly depicted with an iron hooked nose, sometimes a cane, but overall haggard in every way. However, most folklorists believe that she's derived from a Germanic goddess Holda or Old Mother Frost. She's a pre-Christian figure that was known to be a beautiful young woman or one of a more womanly matron. It's a real Hecate situation here. She was known for her goodness, her kindness, and her well-intent. 
She was even referred to as the Good Protectress. If you're interested in a little light reading, might I suggest you check out the works written by a little author you may have heard of, Jacob Grimm. He recounts the telling of the high German 10th century stories of this goddess, who is the goddess of spinning and weaving. This connection alone solidifies between Holda and Frau Perkta for some. Many accounts describe Frau Perkta as having a much larger foot on one leg. Some even go so far as to describe it as the foot of a large goose because it's so wide. This foot was used for the spinning of spinning wheels, which is why she takes particular offense to those who fail their duties in unspun flax and unfinished weaving. Unlike Holda, Perkta rarely traveled alone. She was often accompanied by evil spirits, demons, and the souls of unbaptized children. They would flit and parade from home to home, inspecting the work of the residents and passing their judgment and sentences upon them. Jacob Grimm also had thoughts on this. He thought that Perkta, or Holda, was the leader of what was referred to as the Wild Hunt. The Wild Hunt has been referenced in many cultures in Europe. Some say it's led by fae, ghouls, ghosts, an array of other distasteful creatures. But Mr. Grimm documented his own belief that our very own Jingle Bell Bedlam was the head of the mischievous march. In response to the idea of the wild hunt, people reacted in the most natural way that they could. They dressed themselves to disguise their features so that the creatures of Christmas time could not recognize them as mortals and would let them be. Sound familiar? This tradition is called mummering, and as it spread, parades were held. Folks would disguise themselves and go to neighbors or friends to see if their identities had been sufficiently concealed. It became a game of sorts, where sometimes, if they guessed incorrectly, the homeowner had to provide you with food and drink. However, if you were disguised poorly and they could guess who you were, you had to move on to the next house and try again. Our current traditions of Halloween mimic this Christmas tradition. The final duality I'll leave you with is while she is known as a strict and deadly enforcer of rules, she isn't without revelry. In fact, she was so adamant that on her feast day, the people were to rejoice, to celebrate the epiphany, so much so that in not celebrating and having a merry time, you were making yourself prone to her attacks. So while idle hands may be the devil's tools, not celebrating properly could be just as deadly. And while I feel like I may have had employers in the past that would give Perkta a run for her money, so far as unfair punishment and strict requirements, I wish some of them felt the same way about holidays and enforcing a 40-hour work week.
Gryla began her story as a parasitic beggar. She roamed the towns and cities asking the parents of the land to give her their disobedient children. The parents could dismiss the hungry ogress by giving her food or simply chasing her away. As the story goes, her and her family were eventually chased away to the remote caves of the Atlantic Mountains. With the continuous grow and emergence of culture blending in the form of war and religion, Towards the 18th and 19th century, Gryla became synonymous with the Christmas Yule. Current day Gryla can now hunt and find misbehaving children all year round, a tactic perhaps to keep children in line, much like the American Boogeyman. But it is during Christmas where she truly shines. With the aid of her trusty feline pet, Joruka Turian, the Yule Cat, and her children, the Yule Lads, she leaves her dark, damp cave dwelling to gather the children in her giant sack. She brings the children back to her home and prepares her favorite snack, a stew made of naughty children. Her appetite is never satisfied, and according to the poems written by Gryla, there is never a missed opportunity for her to eat. It is interesting to note the common qualities that Gryla and Lepaludi share as her stories are told. Lepaludi is her third husband, as her second died of old age. The tales of her children by multiple husbands, twins who died at infancy, children who are not associated at all by Christmas stories, perhaps used to further teach of the culture, of the times, and how even the monsters of the caves live almost normal and common lives. In 1746, the Atlantic story of Gryla and her journey to feed her hunger of children became such a cultural staple that some children refused to leave their homes in the fear of getting snatched up by the ogress. It is noted that even the well-behaved children feared that any little hiccup would send them into Gryla's sack. So in response, the government issued a wide band of telling the story of Gryla and her minions as an intimidation or scare tactic. This would forever change the imagery of her. <clears throat> today, Gryla is Today, Gryla and Today, Gryla and usually accompanied by her husband comes to the towns and cities of Iceland not to gather and scoop up bad children, but to show their faces in the form of statues, parade floats, and costume performers. They pose for pictures with the locals and tourists alike. Their depiction stays true to the folklore. They are indeed hideous and scary, but they now take on a lighter side of bringing dismay to children who don't listen to their parents. Instead of devouring them, they leave coal, rotten potatoes, anything other than a nice gift. There is now a sense of joy rather than pure evil, but one should always be wary of the ogress. She might just turn back into her old self if you're not careful. So remember kids, behave, or Gryla might have you for a snack.
my, what have you boys been up to? Yes, Mama Gregor. Brother Stufa gathers pots and pans. And Brother Tisrelika is gathering wooden spoons for us. Tonight we help gather children for your stool. Oh, yes, children, my favorites. You can't have the story of Grella and her husband Lepalude without incorporating her children, the Yule Lads. These 13 offspring of Grella are the 13 minions of their mother. They begin to show their faces on December 12th, with each one given a specific attribute to their evil doings. The last is to leave on January 6th, on the Feast of Epiphany. Starting this parade of pranksters, from December 12th to the 25th, Stikreistra. He is known to harass the family sheep. The unsuspecting family might hear a commotion in their barn. An investigation might turn up this prankster tipping cows over while they sleep. Next is Giligaga. He hides in the gullies and awaits to sneak and steal the milk from the cows straight from the udder. He appears from December 13th to the 26th. Stutfa. He is particularly short and steals pots and pans to eat the crust left from them. He appears from December 14th to the 27th. Next is Struslika. He is known to steal and lick the wooden spoons. He is extremely thin due to malnutrition. He appears from December 15th to the 28th. From December 16th to the 19th is Potteskifa. He also steals leftovers from the unattended pots and pans. Askaslika. This one hides under the beds and awaits for the inhabitants to place their aska, a type of bowl, down on the ground, to which he steals. He appears from December 17th to the 30th. Herdeskela. He enjoys to slam doors during the night, waking the people up in a fright. He makes his appearance from December 18th to 31st. Next is Skygrana. He hunts down a treat known as Skir, a dessert similar to yogurt. He appears from December 19th to January 1st. Begungakreka. He hides in the rafters and snatches sausages that are being smoked. He appears from December 20th and departs January 2nd. Glugengeigene The creepiest of the lads. He snoops around and peeps through windows in search of things to steal. He appears from December 21st and leaves January 3rd. Gutathefa With his grossly large nose, he uses his acute sense of smell to locate Lufebraut, leaf bread. He comes from December 22nd to January 4th. Ketkrukar. He uses a hook to steal meat. He comes from December 23rd to January 5th. And finally, we have Kurtisnika. 
he follows unsuspecting children and steals their candles. Once made of tallow, these were edible candles. He arrives December 24th and departs January 6th. The stories of these 13 trolls, starting from poems in the 17th century, varied from location to location. Some described them as brothers of Gryla and not her children. Some only described nine siblings instead of the unlucky 13. Today, they are considered the helpers of Gryla, who no longer aid in pranks of the stealing of children who misbehave or feed their mother's unsustainable hunger. No. Today, they are depicted in red suits and only leave lumps of coal or the rotten vegetable for the naughty children. And now are considered good of heart as they leave presents for the well-behaved kids. But if you were sleeping soundly in the night of December 18th and suddenly hear the slamming of doors within your home, it is probably Hudeskela pulling pranks to frighten you. Thank you so much for joining us for this special holiday presentation. In a couple weeks, we'll be back to our old selves, cracking bad jokes and puns, laughing at our own said jokes. But in the meantime, we want to wish you a very happy and a very safe Yuletide season. From the Diaz family to yours, happy holidays. Do you need more 50 States of Terror? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you do. You can find us on Facebook, Patreon, and Instagram at 50 States of Terror. Now that's 50 States of Terror. And on Twitter at 50 States Terror without the of, you know, because of the character limit. <laughs> we'll see you there. Yeah, you will. <laughs>